Hey, I want to talk to you today. We talked about the context of intimacy, what God intended for it to be and where he intended for us to experience it last week and and um, how when we operate outside of that environment, we can suffocate with sin. And so the context for intimacy was marriage and marriage alone. Amen. And so, um, and so we're going to look into marriage this week and, and I hope that you will be brave enough to take a little assessment of where you are. Um, it will help. It will help you it will help your spouse. It will help your spouse. I'm just letting you know, it will help your spouse. They've called me already. Um, so thank you. Thank you for preaching this on Sunday. They didn't. But they might. Why don't you stand to your feet? We're going to read from Galatians. Again, it's kind of where we're jumping off every Sunday. The two lists here, the list, the acts of the flesh, and then the fruit of the spirit. He starts in Galatians chapter five. Paul writes this. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but not to use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled Keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. That includes your wife. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So we'll get to, we'll, we'll cover verse 16 and 17, 18 later. Let's just jump down to the list. Verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I've seen every single one of those things in marriage. Not my marriage. I've witnessed it in the last 18 years. Golly, you guys were looking at me with those judgment eyes. Verse 22. So that's what the flesh produces, and it will produce those things in your marriage if you don't crucify the flesh. Verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit is love. It's the exact opposite. It's love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things. There is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions. Since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. That was the NIV translation. Ephesians chapter five is my favorite scripture. Some of you heard me say that when it comes to marriage and I love the way Eugene Peterson does the message paraphrase and I'm going to read from that. I'm not going to read all of it. By the way, my wife volunteered today because some people are out. She's back there running the, the, the sermon, uh, the scripture. And so she's very detail oriented and I'm not. So, so have mercy on her because she's got to follow me today. And then we got, then we can't fight about it later. Paul writes this to to the Ephesians. Now, listen, he gets into marriage, but you have to see what he says before he actually starts talking about marriage. He's talking about actually just how to treat people. You do realize your spouse is a people, right? That when you get married, there's not some special way that you can disrespect your spouse now that you own them, right? No. So we take the context of what he says at the beginning. This is how you treat people. And then he gets to the spouse part. So what does he say? Watch what God does and then do it. 
like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. He lo- his love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Man, those are good words right there, aren't they? Just love like that. Not cautiously, but extravagant. All right. Now, all the way down through a large portion of the scripture, now he, now he, he's warning us. Don't allow lust. Don't, don't allow love to turn into lust. Fulfilling your selfish desires. Calls it a downhill slide into sexual promiscuity. Filthy practices or bullying greed. He says, you can be sure that people using people or religion or things just for what you can get out of them. That's not good. And then in verse 6 and 7, he says, don't let yourselves get taken in by religious smooth talk. God doesn't, God gets furious with people who are full of religious sales talk, but want nothing to do with him. Don't even hang around people like that. So there's all these warnings. Don't waste your time on useless work, mere busy work, or barren pursuits of darkness. Expose these things for the sham they are. It's a scandal when people waste their lives on things they must do in the darkness where no one will see. Rip the cover off of those frauds. See how attractive they look in the light of Christ. Then he says this, so watch your step. Use your head. Make the most of every chance you get. These are desperate times. Don't live carelessly, unthinkingly. Make sure you understand what the master wants. Make sure you understand what the master wants. Don't drink too much wine. That cheapens your life. Drink the spirit of God. Huge draughts of it. Sing hymns instead of drinking songs. You'd drink less if you sang more hymns, by the way. Sing songs from your heart to Christ. Sing praises over everything. Any excuse for a song to God the Father in the name of our master, Jesus Christ. Now, he puts all this, that's what he starts off with. How do you love people? With Throw caution to the wind. Be extravagant. Don't be selfish. He lists all these selfish acts of the flesh. Then he gets to relationships. Out of respect for Christ, be courteous and reverent to one another. Wives, understand and support your husbands in the way that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church. Not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as a church submits to Christ, as he exercises such leadership... Wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. See, he's already covered this. He's just saying, this is the way you treat people. Now apply it to your marriage. A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her. Dressing her in dazzling white silk. Somebody say, buy your wife a dress. Radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor. Guys, we're so thick-headed. He says, when you love your wife like this, it's helping you. really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. No one abuses his own body, does he? No, he feeds it, pampers it. 
That's how Christ treats us, the church, since we are part of his body. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and cherishes cherishes his wife. No longer two, they become one flesh. This is a huge mystery, and I don't pretend to understand it all. What is clearest to me is the way Christ treats the church. And this provides a good picture of how each husband is to treat his wife, loving himself and loving her. And how each wife is to honor her husband. Father, we thank you for this word this morning. We pray, God, that we'd be able to assess where we are and make moves towards you. We pray that our marriages will be a reflection of your grace and mercy and your extravagant love towards us. We pray, God, that we would do the hard work of assessment and correction, Lord. I pray that our marriages would be examples for our kids. I pray that we'd follow the example you gave us of how to love each other. Thank you for it today. In Christ's name we pray. And everyone said, amen and amen. All right, you may be seated. Now, for all you single people in here, don't write me off today like, oh, I'm not married, I'm never going to get married. You might. The trouble is, if you don't prepare now for being married, you're, when you get married, you're going to be in a deficit. Because you think you're ready, but you might not be ready. So, it's really important that... I heard a guy say one time, you should, be, you should be, have people around you that are about 20 years older than you, so that you can look up. And, and see what they've done and be able to learn from their experience. It also helps to have people about 20 years younger than you say, look, man, I know more than you. Shut up. <laughs> For some of you, they might be a four-year-old. But anyway, you could be like, look, I know more than you. Um, so uh, Beth and I, when we first got married, we started coming to this church. We would, go to a, we would go to a marriage group, and everybody in that group was old enough to be our parents. And we were so clueless, we didn't even realize it. You're just like, this is so great. Uh, And we would hear stories from them. They've been married 30 years. And it it just really helped us along. Gave us faith that we can make it. It gave us faith that we could have a long marriage and all those things. So surround yourself with people that know better than you. And one day you'll know better. Amen? Come on, that's just free, good leadership stuff right there. You are not the smartest guy in the room. Find him and hang around him. So anyway, we're talking about the assessment season. The season, sometimes in the summer we get time off and we can go and, and take an account of our lives. And, and uh, if you're married, you're thinking about getting married, you're engaged, you're whatever. Uh, it's good to assess our relationships. And, and um, last week we talked about the context of intimacy and that God... God intended it for be to, intended it for it to be in the environment of marriage and marriage alone, and that living outside of that environment could cause us to suffocate in sin. And so, I wanted to make sure that that if if God's context for intimacy is marriage and marriage alone, then we need to have good marriages with good intimacy, right? Some of you are like, that's impossible. No, marriage is meant to be an intimate thing and it's meant to be love expressed by both people and it, and it's, it is possible even in today's world. And so uh, we're going to look at that, how to assess our marriage and a little bit of practice to do that. And, but I want to put it in the right context uh, for the assessment because I think sometimes we get into marriage with the wrong idea of what it should look like. Because I'll be honest with you, there's not a lot of great examples out there. Uh, the statistic for marriage... In, in general, is about 50% of them end in failure. 
Um, so the only place that that can be a good thing is a baseball batting average. Um, but I have some encouraging news. How many of you uh, have heard the statistic that marriages inside the church end at the same rate as those outside the church? You've heard that. Like, oh man, it's horrible, it's terrible. Marriages in the church fail 50% of the time, just like marriages outside the church. That's actually a false statistic. It's way worse. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. <laughs> we got Jesus and we're still horrible. Uh, w. Bradford Wilcox, a leading sociologist at the University of Virginia, he's a director of National Marriage Project, finds from his own analysis, and, and I've read statistics not just from this guy, but, but it's proven out across, across a wide range of studies, that active conservative Protestants, uh, now listen, I don't think he's talking about political viewpoints, I think he's talking about the dude's got one wife. Conservative these days, but nonetheless. He said, active conservative Protestants who regularly attend church. You know what the key word there is? Regularly. It means they're active in a faith community. They regularly attend church. Are 35% less likely to divorce compared to those who have no affiliation. So you're really excited about that. So you're 35% more likely to stay together because you're in church this morning. Guys, you haven't done anything different. God is on your side. 35% less likely to be divorced. That is a huge statistic. It works. Faith community works. Faith in God works. But here's the situation. It only works when we allow it to work in us. Amen? And, and Paul's writing to the Ephesians. He said, man, don't, don't let this religious smooth talk. Don't, don't let all this stuff, don't let all this stuff move you away from what Christ wanted for you. The, the way you should love people. Don't, don't do that. It's a, it's a, it's a community that you have, to be, you have to be a part of and a participant of. So, I started realizing that most of us, I would say, most of us, I think I'm safe saying that. By the way, just, just for clarification, and, and just so you know, I, Beth and I are celebrating our 22nd marriage uh, anniversary this August 3rd. I was a little bit delayed, but I'll take it. So, so 22 years, so I have a little bit of experience with her not liking me. I have a little bit of experience of me not liking her. I have a little bit of experience of us liking both, but liking each other a lot. I have experience in all the seasons of marriage, even the ones that you got to get somebody else to talk to you about. So, um, so I'm not coming at this from, from a baby face. Uh, we haven't reached, we're like Paul, not that I have attained all this, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. So in the context of that, I realized that I got married for the wrong reason. And I bet you, you did too. Because when Paul describes to the, to the, to the Ephesians how we're supposed to love each other, he never mentions getting what you want. It doesn't even come up in the conversation. He says that God loved us first. The Bible says while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
that it wasn't an act of anything that we've done. We have nothing to boast about, but God in all of his love and mercy and grace loved us so much that Jesus came to the earth, died on the cross, rose again on the third day. Before we took a step towards him, he did that while we were sinners. So Paul says in light of the way God loves us, he says, look to God and see what he does. Matter of fact, Jesus is a great example of this. He said, I only say what the father, what I hear the father say. I only, I only do what I see the father do. And so he would look at people and say, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. He says, I mimic God, the father in all that I do. So now Paul comes to us in Ephesians chapter five. And he says, listen, if you want to be good at this, do what God does. Watch how he loves people, and then you love people the same way. He loves people with no boundaries. He loves people, he's not conservative with his love. He's extravagant with his love. And in the moments that you least deserve it, he pours it out to you. Come on, somebody say amen to that. So what I realized was, is I was actually now, 22 years later, it's never too late. 22 years later, I realized that I, I was actually getting married to give. I thought I was getting married to get something. Hey. <laughs> Let me tell you something. There ain't no red-blooded American man on his wedding night going, I'm getting married to give her my love. No. That's not what he's thinking about. But that's what Scripture tells us. Is that you got married... To give. Because sin, see, sin causes us to be self-centered. And sin causes us to look at the marriage context of what we can receive out of it, not what we can give to it. So, so the sin nature in me, Paul writes to the Galatians, hey, listen, the acts of the flesh are obvious, they're all these things. So what happens is in my marriage relationship, when I am consumed about what I can receive, the sin nature pops up and it ends up producing all of these things in my life. When God looks at our relationship, He looks at what He can give us. Now, watch how this works. When we become children of God, then our motivation towards God changes as well, doesn't it? (laughs) See, you've been... We've been lied to as Americans. We've been lied to that our relationship with God is a relationship that we receive only. But Paul writes to us that we should offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him. That when Jesus, when God saves us, now it's our, now we're in the relationship. And so now that we're in the relationship, our, our job is to what? Give. We give our worship. We give our time. We give. When's the last time I sat down and prayed, God, am I giving enough to you? Because that's how you taught me. That's how you taught us to love. You didn't teach us to love by getting things. That's a spoiled little four-year-old stomping his feet in Walmart because he didn't get a Nerf gun. I'm going to give you a Nerf gun. <laughs> No, so we spend our we spend we spend our relationship with God going, God, give me this, give me this, give me this. And he said, I thought you, I thought I taught you better than that. I thought I taught you better than that. I thought I taught you how to give. I thought I taught you how to give. So we realize that in a marriage relationship, we're actually getting married to give ourselves to someone else. 
Matter of fact, Paul writes even this, and I stand wholeheartedly behind this. He says that your body is not even, you don't even have control over your own body. He said, once you get married, you give control to your spouse. He said, so you don't get to decide when. And then he tells the man, you're not in control of your own body. He tells the woman, you're not in control of your own body. So he actually tells him, hey, don't separate yourselves intimately unless it's a mutual thing. For a very short, 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 short period of time. I think that's what Paul said. I think it was in, I think it was in italics. And I think it was bold. And I think he was like 30, 30 minutes max. No. No, he said, he said, you become one flesh, so you've given yourself to someone else. So he said, you're not even owners of your own body anymore. So we get married with the idea that we're getting something. And Paul tells us, Paul tells the Ephesians, no, no, no. In relationships, you're there to, get, to give. So it, it changes things, right? So, so now, now my assessment of how good my marriage is isn't about what I'm receiving. It's about how good I'm giving. You see, if you measure the wrong thing every time, it, you'll make the wrong changes. So it's so easy for me to measure our marriage and say, well, you're not doing this. You're not doing that. You're, well, if you do that better, we'd all be better. But God tells me to measure my marriage on how much love I'm giving, not receiving. Well, I'm going to tell you something. That's difficult at times, isn't it? That's difficult at times. Lord, but all I can think about is what I'm not getting. And he says, yeah, yeah, I died for you while you weren't giving anything. So, so we're complaining to the one who knows better than all of us. So God, yeah, but I'm not getting what I want. I know, but if you give, it would change things. If you give, it would change things. If you give, it would change things. And so he says, listen, it's a love marked by giving, not getting. That's how he says it. Now watch, watch when he gets down into Ephesians 5, he starts talking about marriage. He says this, he says, his directive to the wife is this, understand and support. Now I find it curious that he doesn't tell husbands to understand. Thank the Lord. Because God says, I'm not asking you to do the impossible. I'll do that. He doesn't say, men, understand your wife. I'm like, dude, you made me too dumb for that. Here's the beautiful thing. He says, wives, understand and support your husbands. You know why I think that's so important? Because he made us so different. It's giving. It's wife. It's it's when he when he when he comes home from work, and he didn't accomplish all that he thought he should accomplish that day. It's when he wakes up one day and he's not as far along, and he's forty years old, and he's not as far along as he thought he was going to be at forty. It's when he it's when he it's when he's put all of his time and energy into something and it didn't work out. He's saying the way you give in those moments is to understand. It's to understand. He's a fragile little man. Understand is to be under. Lord, how do I love him in this? Understand. Just understand the way the way he's wired, that he wants to protect you, that he wants to provide for you, that he wants to be the hero, that he wants to wear the cape. Every time I draw myself, it's with a cape. Every time. I got an S under my shirt right now. Every time. 
and and Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says, ladies, understand him. How do you give at the beginning? Just understand. Support him. Tell him it's going to be okay, even if you got to lie to him. Understand support. So he tells he tells the ladies right up front, give. Give your understanding, give your love. But then he turns to the guys and he says this, go all out. A love marked by giving, not getting. So he so it's not it's not that the women are giving and the guys are just receiving. He says, and I tell this with guys that are getting ready to get married, I say all the weight is on you. All she has to do is understand and support you. You got to live like Jesus. I mean, who's got the bigger weight here? So he says, guys, go all out in your love for her. Can I just give you some insight? It's not love unless she feels it. I thought the ladies would be like, hallelujah. It's not love unless she feels it. It's not love unless she feels it. It's not love. It's not. I think it's a beautiful thing that God caused us to have to study our wives. Because listen, you don't have to understand. You just have to know what works. Right? It's sort of like electricity. I don't know how it works. But I know the black wire is always hot. And the, and the bare wire is always ground. And if you touch those two together, bad things happen. So I don't know how it works. I just know that it works. So I don't have to understand the way the whole thing works. I just have to study enough to know that it works. Amen? So I have to be extravagant in my love towards her. He says, a love marked by giving, not getting. Now, here's what I know about men. We are by nature selfish. I was like, really quick over here. So we have to battle the flesh. Paul says, crucify the flesh. Put it to death. What is my knee jerk? My knee jerk is I want her to do what I want her to do when I want her to do it. I mean, we may not be that brutal, but it's, it, it comes up to the surface. Look, I just want you to be quiet. Let me make all the decisions and, and we'll all get along. But he says that's not the way love works. The way love works is that you give. You give. You give recklessly with abandonment. You just give. You don't. Can I say this, guys? Loving your wife is no place for a budget. Now, now let me explain to you the way the budget works. Let me explain to you the way a budget works. A budget always calculates how much comes in before you dictate how much goes out. A budget always calculates how much comes in before you dictate how much goes out. So if you love your wife on a budget, you will only love her according to what has come in. And Christ's love told you to love her regardless of what came in. So you're going to say, she didn't make a whole lot of deposits this week, so she ain't getting nothing. There's no room in the budget. But when God said, I loved you before you even knew who I was, and I said, Jesus, I had a plan from the foundation of the earth to save you, redeem you, set you free. And what are you doing? You're counting how much your wife has given you and letting that dictate what you give her back? That's not love. That's a budget. If you've ever sat in front of an accountant, there's no love in that conversation. It's, you don't have enough money. And you're like, yeah, but I feel like I want more. 
There's no love with an accountant. They just go, this is what came in and this is what you can spend. No more, no less. And God says, throw it all out the window. I don't care what came in. I don't care what came in. I don't care what came in. Give it all. Give her everything you've got. Give her everything. Do you see the way the message paraphrase explains it? He says, dressing her in dazzling white silk. And, and but, but we do this. I don't have a white silk budget. He said, it's not dependent on what came in. It's not dependent on what has came in. He says, I loved you before you loved me. I did all this before you could do anything in response. So men, go all out for your love for your wives, marked by giving, not getting. So here's what we find out. Most of us got married for the wrong reason. We're finding out all these years later, I got married to give it away. I got married. Some of you are like, boy, I've been feeling that. I got married to give. It's an example of Christ. Hey, watch what God does and do that. Watch what he does and do that. How many times does he forgive? I don't know. He forgives me every day. He forgives me every day. I'm going to watch what he does. How many times am I going to forgive my my wife? I better rephrase that. How many times is she going to forgive me? Every day. It's a love marked by giving, not getting. Now, here's the issue. I can be my own worst enemy. I know that most, I know that most marriage issues, I've sat in front of enough people. Most marriage issues come from an idea of one side or another that the other side has a problem. I have never heard anybody walk into my office and say, I'm the reason this is bad. 18 years. I have never had one person walk in the office and go, I'm the reason this is failing. Everybody walks in my office and goes, she's crazy. She's crazy. Or they'll walk in my office and say, he's crazy. And I'll go, really? Like it's all him? It's, but watch what sin does. Sin makes us self-centered. So when God asks me to give, I go, but I haven't gotten anything. And the reason this is bad is because I haven't gotten anything yet. And I need something in order for me to give because I can't give from nothing. And God goes, well, that's what I'm asking you to do. That's a sign that you love them. That's a sign that you love her. That's a sign that you love him is that you don't require anything up front. We live, we live in a country that doesn't have dowries. <laughs> I just came from a country that does have dowries. I find it odd negotiating the value of your spouse up front at the beginning. God says, you can't put a value on it, you just keep giving. So I become my own worst enemy. So Galatians 5, verse 16, 17, 18 says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever. Everybody, can we all say that together? So you are not to do whatever you want. I just fixed all of your problems right there. You are not to do whatever you want. You know what? You know what I find out sometimes? What I want is, does seem justified though. 
And I could surround myself with people to make sure it's justified. People believe me. They don't believe her. People will believe, oh, I see. You know how many times I've seen over the years? To justify the acts of the flesh will surround ourselves. Doesn't the Bible say in the last times they'll put around themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear? And you only associated that with the stage. It's the guy at the, at the whatever store and you're going, man, my wife. And he goes, yep, you're justified, brother. You're justified. That's an itching ear teacher. Get away. Get away. That's not. He said, don't follow that guy. Follow what God does. What does God do? He loves extravagantly when they don't deserve it. So what happens is I become my own worst enemy. I bend to the desires of the flesh. You know what? Jesus had a great example of this. It was in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. There are going to be garden moments in your marriage, in your relationship. There are going to be garden moments. There are going to be more than one of them. Where you're going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane, you're going to, you're know, you know what's coming and you don't want to do it. You know it's an apology. You know it's a lifestyle change. You know it's a, I got to start giving and not demanding. You know what's coming. And we see the example of Christ. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying. The Son of God is in the Garden and his flesh does not want to die. I'm so thankful that we have this recorded for all of eternity where Jesus has this battle where Paul says, crucify the flesh, but we actually have somebody that did it. Where he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. You know what? In a marriage relationship, we do that all the time. Lord, if it's possible, I don't want to do it this week. If it's possible, Lord, tell her not to ask me. If it's possible, Lord, tell him. To stay away. But Jesus knew the battle inside. He had done it when he was tempted by Satan. It says he was hungry and thirsty. And Satan said, turn that rock into bread. And he said, man, you're crazy. I will not bow to the desires of the flesh. I'm not made that way. I will submit myself to the spirit every time. And what Jesus does in the garden is he says, I want to do this It's what deep down inside, I'd rather not die. But you know what? Not my will, but yours be done. How many times in the last six months in your marriage have those words uttered out of your mouth? Lord, that's what I want to do. But not my will. Oh. I'm going to have to love unconditionally now. I'm going to have to give when I wanted to receive... Not my will, but yours. Yours be done. So, so I get married for the wrong reason. And I realize I have to give. And then I become my own worst enemy at times because I'm battling this flesh nature inside of me. And Paul says, just kill the thing. Kill the thing. Every day, wake up and kill the thing. And then what happens is we're actually really scared of assessment. Because here's what happens. I, I tell a couple this when they come in and talk to me. I'll say, Hey, the problem is you got to bring that subject up when everything's going well. How do you know it's easy to bring something up when you're arguing? Everybody's mad. Come on, stop looking at me like my marriage is terrible. Everybody's mad. And you go, oh yeah? 
well, what about this? You know you never resolve anything because then they're sticking their finger back in your face. And you're like, yeah, but I got good reasons. <laughs> so I'll say, hey, listen, you got to bring that up when you're not upset about it. Do you have the same panic attacks that I do? Because you're like, it's a good day. Why would I ruin it with a meaningful conversation? <laughs> the sun's out. The birds are chirping. Everybody seems fine. And I'm going to bring up last week. You're crazy. We're afraid of what we might find out. You want to put the fear of God in somebody say, hey, why don't you write down how you think your marriage is going right now and then show it to your spouse? Whoa. I mean, we got lunch plans, man. I can't do that. <laughs> like it's going really good right now. We're afraid of the assessment because we're afraid of what we might find out. Here's a problem. You're not a good assessor of yourself. We talked about this last week. You're not a good assessor of yourself. Trust me when I say that. I'm fine. She loves me. She's doing it because God told her to. (laughs) Not because it's easy. So what happens is, is we get to this place where we're brave enough to sit down with each other. Okay. Tell me what the deal is. And we allow each other to talk. It's called assessment season. It's called assessment season. Now, you got to do it with the right spirit. Lord, I want my wife to know I love her because I give recklessly love. There's no boundaries on what I'll give her. There's no boundaries on what I'll do. There's no boundaries on it. I want her to know that I got into this thing to give to her. I want her to know that I got into this thing to give myself to her. I want to prove that out with my life. So when we get into the assessment, we might find out that that's not really the way it's working out. So the fear of what you might find out will keep you right where you currently are. Paul writes to the Ephesians, says, so watch your step, use your head, make the most of every chance you get. These are desperate times. Don't live carelessly, unthinkingly. Make sure you understand what the master wants. He says, take an assessment of where you are right now. What, what are, where are we? Get an honest picture of your current situation. Here's what I know about most of your circumstances. You are one change away from a totally different life. One change. One change away. I'm not talking, I'm not talking you got to do all kinds. I'm talking most of us are one real change, lifestyle change away from a drastically different looking life. A drastically different looking marriage. One change. And yet Satan has this unbelievably canny, uncanny way to keep us locked up. I remember, um, well, I don't care who knows this. I learned how to have a conversation with my wife when I was a teenager at home getting in trouble. And so what would happen is, um, 16, 17, 18 years old, 
And uh, I was a knucklehead at times. And my parents would sit me down and they would, they would start interrogating me. Anybody ever? Uh, so what I figured out was I could stay up longer than them. So, so they'd get tired about midnight. And I'd be like, I can do this all night. And so they would say, Chris, why are you doing And I would just be quiet. I think in marriage they call that stonewalling. But it was really effective when I was a teenager. So I learned how to do that at 16, 17, 18 years old. I got married when I was 20. I didn't have time to correct anything. So at 20 years old, Beth and I get married. And she's not a stonewaller. Not a stonewaller. So what would happen is she would say something to me and I would go, I can stay up longer than you, baby. We can sit here all night and I'm not going to say a word. And so I realized, what I realized was it took me six years, you think? Oh, boy, there was a long six years, a lot of long nights of me not talking. What I realized was I was operating like that because of my selfish desire. Of not wanting to confront things that I was doing. I don't want to talk about it. I just want you to leave me alone. So you get married and you start realizing I'm not getting what I want. And so when I don't get what I want, my response was to just not say anything. Be quiet. Stonewall. And finally she'll get tired and give up. And then I realized this in the marriage I wanted either. And so what you, what you, you have to do the assessment. I think we went to a marriage retreat and I remember cold sweats because they gave you homework. You had to go back to the thing and do the homework. Anybody ever been to one of those? So we go back to the hotel room, we start talking and I'm like, ah, mm-hmm. so that, but I realized I had to give her something. That's why we got into this. It was a shock to my sister. You mean I just can't keep taking and taking and taking and be quiet? No, 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 no. You have to give. And so it took us sitting down and taking a real assessment of where we were. Let me let you in on a secret. We were coming to church. We were involved. We were doing all the things. We were going to the marriage group with all the old people. But we hadn't taken the time to stop and go, where are we at? And what it required for me to, was to say, where am I at? And I had to do the hard work of going, that's not going to work anymore. Chris, you can't keep operating like that. And so what, what did I do? I'm a, listen, Paul says crucify the flesh daily. You know why? Because your flesh has nine lives. It's been 22 years. You know how quick I can turn on the stonewalling? Faster you can get out of this building. (laughs) Says something to me I don't like. I'm just like, hmm? Go back to when I was 24 years old. And I have to realize, man, you got to kill that thing. It just popped back up. You got to keep killing it every day. You got to take an assessment of who you are and how you love on a... Almost on a daily, God, help me do it today. Help me love her like, like she never imagined I could today. Help me love him like, like he can't believe it today. Help me today, Lord. And so I can't be afraid of the assessment because it might reveal something in me that I need to change. I need to be honest about it. 
So watch. I'm going to help you out. Are you ready? That was a question you could answer. That wasn't rhetorical. You guys got to work on the rhetorical thing. Some of you answer when you're not supposed to, and then you're quiet when you are. All right, the band's going to come up. They're going to give me some background music to make this more gentle. Because I know some of you can start breathing heavy right here. <gasps> Stand to your feet. Now, I just showed somebody in the first service how to get here. Open up your Bible app. It's called the Bible app. You can search it on Google Play, Apple, Apple Store. The Bible app, okay? You go down to the bottom right-hand corner, I think, on the, on the iPhones, there's like four bars. Tap on the bar. An event of... In the list, it's going to say events. Hit the events thing, and then enable your, your location services, and Hedgesville Church is going to come up. Click on Assessment Season 3, and these questions will be in there. See how much I'm helping you already? You don't have to write anything down. Okay. Sometime in the next six months... I want you to do this, all right? I know some of you are going to have to work yourself into it. You're going to have to eat a bowl full of spinach like Popeye, and you're going to have to get all jacked up. Fifteen things, all right? Not 30, 15. On a scale of one to ten, give your overall, overall assessment of our marriage in the past six months. Just be honest, all right? Two. How has a husband's leadership been over the past six months? You want an honest assessment, guys, you have to ask the question. How is the wife's support? Follow up. How can I improve in fulfilling my respective role? You're asking each other these questions. Three, how is your walk with God, both, per- both personally and as a couple? Be honest. Four, where do you see ungodliness in my life? You better put on your big boy pants when you ask these things. Come on, we're doing an assessment. Where do you see ungodliness in my life? Five, do I have any unconfessed sin that needs to be shared with my spouse? Six, are we guarding meaningful time together? Prayer, conversation, date night, are we guarding that in our relationship? Seven, how is our sex life? Eight, some of you said sex life. Eight, What could I do to make you feel more loved, secure, or respected? Nine, how can I serve you better? Ten, what are the issues that we need to anticipate in the upcoming six months? Can we get a grip on something that's going to come up and impact our lives? Eleven, what is your greatest personal disappointment and your greatest satisfaction in the last six months? Twelve, how can I best pray for you? 13, what are, what are our major upcoming mutual prayer concerns? And then 14 and 15 are kind of some directions. Spend a few moments in an encouraging fashion sharing several of the things that each of you loves and appreciates about one another. Because this is going to be tough, so there's an end on something good. And then 15, close by spending some concerted time in prayer for those concerns you have just shared, as well as thanking God for his faithfulness to you as a couple over the past six months. Listen, there's nothing easy about getting better. Nothing easy about it. But it's worth it every time. 
And so go to your Bible app, look up Hedgesville Church on there, get that list. In the next six months, sit down with your spouse and and have that conversation and then call me and make an appointment. Somebody, whatever you got to do, whatever you have to do. He says, don't put a limit on your love. So you know that, you know what that tells me? Whatever we have to do to get better, I'm willing to give to it. My part is I'm willing to give to whatever we have to do to get better. And do that on a consistent basis. Amen. Father, we thank you this morning. We pray, God. Lord, there are great marriages here. We want the best marriages we can possibly have. I pray for those that are thinking about getting married, Lord, that they would start off on the right foot, a relationship marked by giving, not getting. Lord, I pray that you'd bless us as we move towards you and your desire for our lives. I pray that you bless our families. I pray that you bless our church. I pray that you bless everyone we come in contact with because we're becoming better at the way, at what you've call, called us to do. We thank you for it. We honor you. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Come on, church. Could you give him honor and praise this morning? He's worthy.